Okay, we've got a good one today. My guest is Dr. Andy Jones, Professor of Applied Physiology at University of Exeter in England. I was really excited about this interview because Andy can talk about the sport from a number of perspectives. Number one, a serious competitive athlete himself, which we'll talk about. Um, Number two, a PhD research scientist, world-renowned expert in the field of endurance sport and physiology, Um, and also as a practitioner consultant with real-world athletes. He has been directly involved uh, with multiple world record holders in the marathon, and we'll talk about that too. Um, So actually, I will say the challenge with this interview was having so much ground (laughs) I wanted to cover um, and balancing that with going very deep into any one topic. I mean, we could probably have spent easily two hours just talking about his own athletic experience or just his work with Paula Radcliffe, or just his work with um, the Nike Breaking 2 project, any other number, any number of other topics. But he has spoken in depth on a lot of those experiences um, on other platforms. So the idea with this interview was to ask mostly more general um, marathon training-related topics and allow him to bring in and apply his experience uh, as he saw fit to those questions. But in order to give you a little context here, uh, since we do refer to some of his uh, work in the interview, let me give you a little bit of background since we don't detail much of it in the interview. So first of all, Andy still holds the UK youth under-18 record in the half marathon. Uh, He ran a 106.55, and that was set in 1987. The record still stands today. Um, He went on to university, got more um, involved in the academic side of the sport, ended up getting his Ph.D., He got connected to Paul Radcliffe early on in his career and and actually ended up um, advising her basically from the time she was uh, like a junior, you know, around 18 years old, all the way, you know, through past the time she set the world record in the marathon. He acted as a uh, scientific consultant. He did, she would come to his lab periodically and do testing over the years and Um, He would advise on training and that sort of thing. Uh, And actually, in 2006, he published a paper about his experience working with Paula and all the physiology behind her performance and everything. And I will link to that in the notes of this show. Later on, in uh, 2016, 2017, he was hired by Nike to uh, sort of head up and help coordinate the breaking tube marathon project which is uh where he 
was involved in selecting the athletes and consulting with their coaches and on training and nutrition and all that sort of thing and uh, sort of helped put that event together from a scientific um, and training perspective. And the actual event took place, I think, in May 2017. And most people are probably uh, aware of this. Um, Elliot Kipchoge ended up actually coming up just short of the two-hour mark in that event. He ran two hours and 25 seconds. Um, what else can I say? More than 300 original research and review articles published. Fellow of the American College of Sports Medicine, uh, British Association of Sports and Exercise Science, European College of Sports Science and Physiological Society. Uh, he's the editor-in-chief of the European Journal of Sports Science, serves on the editorial board of six other international journals, in sports medicine and exercise science, you get the point. I think that is enough background, so we will uh, get on with it here. Uh, first of all, thanks for just taking some time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Good to be here. I thought I could start by asking you about your time uh, running with the club as a youth, um, the Newport Harriers in Wales. Which, as I understand, and you could maybe touch on this, has a pretty rich history and tradition. But my question is, did your training, because you were a pretty serious athlete uh, at a young age. I think, if I'm not mistaken, you ran something like a 106 half marathon as a teenager. Um, But my question is, did your club have a distinct training philosophy or a tradition um, kind of the way we talk about generalizing, you know, all the the Australian way or the Japanese way or that kind of thing. Did it have a distinct, you know, method of training that most people in the club followed or a person like a coach that was kind of had a certain school of thought? That is a really good question. It's, um, it's one I've never been asked before. And um, it's it's hard to say because it was it's the only club I've ever been part of. And up to a point, while I sort of ran for them, I wore the Newport Harriers black and amber vest, and I attended some training sessions there, and I knew the sorts of training that they did. I sort of constructed my own training programs. I like to kind of keep some control of that, although what I did was not very you know, far removed from what they did. Um, I'm not sure it had its own philosophy. It was, it was dom- you know, the, the philosophy, the, the main coach, there was a guy called Mike Rowland, who was the sort of personal coach to a number of our uh, top runners at the club but had been a very successful marathon runner himself and I think had been influenced a bit by Arthur Lydiard. So, he, you know, he was well aware of all the all the different theories. He tried them all. Some of them worked, some of them didn't, that kind of thing. He spent a lot of time in Sweden, so probably learnt a lot from, from the great uh, Scandinavian athletes as well. Um, so, and he, he also trained with Gordon Pirrie, who was one of Britain's uh, sort of great athletes of around the, 50s or 60s but my history is not fantastic so Mike, Mike Rowland was very influential on in what we did I would say that what we were doing in, in in Newport was similar to what other clubs were doing in South Wales and across the UK at that time which was you know typically 80 to 100 miles a week is what the senior men would be doing but they certainly didn't do it in a you know so-called polarized fashion it tended to be pretty 
pretty full on. You know, it was a lot of hard work. So they weren't running easily very often, um, even if they were going for continuous steady state runs. They tend to be clipping along. It wouldn't be above the threshold, but they wouldn't be running at eight or nine minute mile pace when they were quite comfortable running at six minute mile pace. So I, I would say, you know, there was, a, there was the long run on a Sunday. There were probably two um, track or road sessions per week where they're doing either shorter intervals, 400 meter repetitions or, or thousand or, you know, um, mile reps, that kind of thing. And then a lot of tempo running and good quality steady running to make up the rest of it. So I think that's what, uh, that was the, that was the sort of daily diet or weekly diet for, for athletes in, in the Newport areas. So as you progress through your career, once you got into the academic side of uh, the sport and even as a practitioner, you know, advising, consulting with athletes and coaches, did your experience later on in your career, your non-athletic career, um, did it, did you look back now through that lens of your experience and look at the training that you personally did in a different light and maybe you know, does does your other experience in the sport now kind of either affirm what you guys were doing versus maybe make you question certain things? I think it more or less affirms it, at least for the type of the level that we were at and the age that we were at and the ambitions that we had, for sure. And when I started working with, you know, um, contemporary elite athletes, as, as a physiologist, when I'm looking at their data, I also like to see the training that they've been doing. doesn't mean to say that I interfere with the training that they've been doing, but it gives me an insight and it gives me some opportunity to provide some recommendations. And clearly what I'm going to recommend is colored a bit by what I've done in the past. So there's, there's that element of it. Um, I think it more or less affirms what we did. You know, certainly Newport Harriers was very successful. It had some incredible individuals. Steve Jones, who set the world record for the marathon, you know, my own. Um, I, I don't think I could have run any faster if I'd taken a, a different approach. On the other hand, perhaps um, if I hadn't trained quite so hard, I might have had a longer career. I just You just never know with that stuff. But I've got no regrets in the way that I uh, prepared for the competitions um, that I did. I, I do think as as you get older, you've got to be a bit more careful with it. I, I think you need longer to recover between harder sessions and you need that, you know, you just need to take care more. It used to be the case that I could go out of the, straight out of the door, you know, when you're 16, 17, 18 and start running close to five minute mile pace from, right from the get go. I couldn't even run a five minute mile now, most probably. Um, so you, you have to warm up more slowly. You have to be a lot more careful. You have to uh, consider things like flexibility and, all of those things a bit more as, as well. So, But it, it depends on your age, your ability and your aspirations. And I think what we were doing back in the late 80s, early 90s, um, you know, was very similar to what we were doing across the UK at that time. And the, the quality, the depth, um, the standard was amazing. You know, you had more people doing the sport, I think, in the first place. But um, we, we didn't necessarily have, have people running... You know, 2728 for the marathon was was the world record at that time. But if you look at the depth, people who were running under, you know, 215 or 220 was probably much greater depth then than there is now. So, you know, I think I think that approach is is generally pretty sound. You know, that's an interesting tangent to uh, think about. Maybe we could for a minute, because I think that trend is probably the same in the U.S. where overall you have a much larger participation as a whole in 
marathon and running in general, but the the depth at the higher levels is much thinner. Yeah. Um, and I wonder why that is. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, that's that's a lot of speculation you could have there. But do you have any theories? Um, I'd like to know what the you know number of people coming into the sport is. I'm I don't know whether there's as much sort of talent ID identification as there perhaps was and the encouragement for people to enter the clubs in the first place. And I mean, the thing about athletics, as you know, distance running is that it's really, really hard. It appeals to certain people, but it's a lot of it's not fun. <laughs> it's, right. it's tough work. And, you know, you can you can get you can get fit and you can have fun and you can enjoy sport and success by doing other things, by playing soccer or, you know, and I, I think there's a bit of a sociological aspect to this, isn't there, about um, which sports am I going to do best at, which which ones are getting the most attention, which which are the stars that I wish to try to emulate, who are the role models. And, you know, back in the uh, back in the 80s, you know, we had Seb Coe and Steve Ovette and Steve Cram and Peter Elliott and Steve Jones. And I think a lot of, uh, uh, you know, 16, 17, 18-year-olds wanted to be the next Steve Jones or Steve Ovette and, and that dragged them into the sport. We've got Mo Farah now, or did have, you know, until very recently, but whether it has quite the same appeal because, you know, things have moved to another level as well. Back in the back in the 80s, if you were the best in the UK, you had a pretty good chance of being the best in the world. Nowadays, unless you're Mo Farah, you know, and you're competing with the East Africans, you're not going to come close. So you're, you're probably thinking, why would I be running, you know, 80 or 100 miles a week for 15 years and not actually <laughs> ever win anything or, um, or earn a living from it? So people are probably distracted and they play play other sports or they have or maybe they don't do any sports anymore i think we, we are seeing that you know it's a growing obesity crisis isn't there and perhaps um those teenagers nowadays are, are, are playing e-games in their bedrooms rather than <laughs> actually doing physical exercise well speaking uh, well you're actually pretty familiar with multiple people who have been the best in the world or are the best in the world which um i like to talk about but one in particular a lot of people We'll recognize you from your work with Paula Radcliffe um, and the paper you put out, um, you know, I forget the title, but, you know, the, the physiology of a world class or a world record marathon or something like that. Um, and I'm curious to know, because you met with and tested in the lab and kind of advised Paula for a pretty long period of time. Um, and, you know, how just a few minutes ago you were to touching on with age, sometimes you kind of have to change your approach and the way you do things. I'm curious whether your recommendations based on your testing with Paula changed at all over the years, you know? Um, yeah. Um, good question. Again, I have to cast my mind back. I guess they didn't, well, you know, I, I was working with Paula between the ages of her being around 18 and, sort of early 30s, I suppose. So there was a big kind of change over that period. When she first came to the lab, she was really only doing maybe 20 miles a week. And she was a phenomenal talent. Uh, it was clear from the get-go that marathon was going to be her forte rather than 1,500 metres. So the long-term approach was to be, you know, let's move you in that direction, but without any rush. Um, and then, of course, by the time you get out into the... Um, into the 2000s, um, she's the best in the world already, and she's running 100 plus miles per week. Interestingly, though, 
you know, although she was doing more mileage over that whole period of time, it gradually crept up and she moved from the track to the road and eventually to the marathon. Her philosophy didn't particularly change um, because her thing was always a quality first approach. I don't think she ever really ran slowly or easily. She'd rather have had a complete rest day, I think, than, than jogged and have a poor quality session. So although she ended up doing a lot more volume, it wasn't, um, you know, quality was never sacrificed. So it was definitely, you know, a quality first approach. And, um, you know, looking at her success, um, again, in that kind of age range up until early to mid 30s, that you're probably still OK with that. You know, I think beyond that, you, again, you probably have to start to be a bit more cautious. Um, it's difficult, isn't it, in retrospect, to think about, what, what, you know, what, how would things have been had the different approach been taken? All you know is that the approach that did that was taken ended up with those results. And it's, they're hard to criticise in, in that regard. No, for sure. And that quality first approach, um, does that, in your mind... Is that approach at odds at all with the approach, the approaches you've seen with other athletes that you've worked with? Um, for example, you know, with the Nike two-hour project and your time in Kenya. Because, I mean, you hear in popular media, you know, and, and I don't know how much of it is actually reality, but, you know, the Kenyans being super good at taking it easy on their easy days and that kind of thing. More of a hard, easy approach as opposed to, you know, quality first or mostly quality. So is there a contrast though? And not to say that one is necessarily right or wrong, but there are different ways to do it. Do you, would you make that contrast? Well, I think with, with Paula, I think it is true to say that when we were prescribing heart rates and different speeds, the idea was not for her to kind of run faster. It was just to kind of hold it back a little bit. She liked running fast so even on a relatively easy day, she would go out and run relatively quickly. Now, whether that was hard or easy is another thing, but she would never run slow. Um, and she would probably never run really easy either. She just enjoyed, you know, she's out running and she starts to get, you know, she just enjoys. And the danger with that, of course, is that um, you probably don't recover really well between the sessions that are supposed to be extra hard. So you might not get the quality that you want in those particular, say, track sessions. So there's a danger for that. Now, if you're a marathon runner, that may not be such a big issue, you know, because actually she's doing a lot of high quality, steady and tempo running. Even if she's getting the really high end quality, that could be what was responsible for her being the supreme marathon runner that she be became. I do think that earlier in her career, when she was running 5K and 10K, the approach that she took where she's running a little bit too quickly, some of the time, if not all of the time, might have been detrimental to her ability to win medals on the track. You know, but it's hard to change people's psychology as far as that goes. And it was that psychology that made her the great marathon runner that she, that she obviously was. Um, when it comes to the Kenyans, I think there's a little bit of, you know, baloney spoken a bit, of, you know, about that. Certainly in the evenings, they are capable of running quite slowly. Um, so, but they will have run pretty hard in the morning, but they might do half an hour or 40 minutes pretty, you know, surprisingly slowly. And it's much more of a kind of a social event and it's just time on the feet and a shake out and that kind of thing. Um, I think some people get a bit confused when they start off to do their long run. There might be a big group of them gather on a you know street corner in the in the dawn time, <laughs> the pitch black, and they start running and they start running pretty slowly. The first mile might take nine or eight and a half minutes, something like that. 
And the people who observe that think, oh, they're just they're running slowly again. But actually, just that thing accelerates. The first mile might be nine minutes, the next one will be seven, the next one will be six, and then they'll be, you know, we get progressively faster for the next 20 miles. So I think too much is made of, of the easy um, because the bulk of what they do is is pretty good quality, I would say. You know, they'll do, so Elliot will do a couple of track, or they're not always on the track, one's on the track, um, Another thing will be sort of an undulating fart look, but they're at about 10k pace probably. Um, but there's a one or two sort of tempo runs. I've told you about the long run, which tends to be a progressive tempo run. And there'll be other runs where they're um, putting in an effort that's equivalent at least to marathon pace, I would say, at least during a, a fair proportion of the run that they do. Now, I think you made an important distinction there between hard, easy versus fast, slow. Um, you know, because those are very relative terms. So whereas um, Paula or or anybody may be running a, quote, fast clip, but it probably is relatively easy for them, where it's probably extremely hard for somebody else. So um, I guess for marathoners, it's probably easy to get um, sucked into the trap of just looking at the absolute times other people are posting and trying to compare, you know, your training to that versus it's hard to put a metric on hard, easy, that scale. So um, in terms of, in the relative terms of hard, easy, I wonder, you know, like take, for example, that progressive long run that might be happening in Kenya with a big group of guys you know, sure, maybe they're working into, you know, five-minute pace or something like that towards the end. But at the same time, that's not necessarily – they may not even be touching their threshold yet. Um, Absolutely. I mean, of course, they're up at altitude. So I think the last couple of miles probably getting a bit harder. But, yeah, I mean, take Steve Jones. I gave you the example with him, you know, um, when he ran 208.05 to set the world record. And then a year or so later, when he ran 2.7.13, he was probably only doing 80 or 90 miles a week, but he was training like a 10K guy, but with a slightly longer Sunday run. But I think, you know, he had a philosophy, no easy miles. <laughs> and uh, it kind of, that was that was our club philosophy, really. And, and it certainly had a bearing on on the way I think about the way I train, to my detriment now that I'm in my 50s, I must say. <laughs> um, so I'm having to relearn that. But Paula was a bit like that, too. Elliot's not. Elliot's much more laid back. Um, in Ethiopia, they do a lot of miles, a heck of a lot of, certainly the Lalisa de Sisa group was doing a lot of miles. When you do a lot of miles, you can't run them very fast or very or very hard. So naturally, the speed comes down. Um, but with Steve, yeah, I mean, so so when he, when he ran two, 207 marathon, he was probably capable of a bit faster because he always used to blaze through the first half. Um but he was probably capable of operating about 4.50 pace, something like that, 4.45s for the entire marathon. And so for him, actually, you know, running at five-minute mile pace is certainly steady state. And the majority of the miles that he ran in an 80-mile-a-week wouldn't have been very much slower than five-minute mile pace. Wow. Because it feels, rel- you know, for them, it feels relatively easy. And if you can get really comfortable at running at close to five-minute mile pace, then racing at that is not such a big um Big shock to the system. Sure. Uh, that kind of brings us to an interesting uh, – the paper that I mentioned that you wrote um, after Paula set the world record. Um, you go into her, you know, 
her physiology tests over the years and and one of the I, I kind of I didn't read the whole thing a lot of it is hard for a non-scientist to really grasp but something I think a big takeaway was the fact that her vo2 max didn't change much throughout the course of her marathoning career yeah. but what you call running economy the ability to sustain longer periods of running at a higher percentage of your vo2 max that is what where the most gain was over her career um and you can correct me if i'm if i'm interpreting that wrong but that seemed to be the big takeaway for me and i'm wondering that trend um for someone who's focusing on the marathon and it, do you think that's a common trend for people, not necessarily to make big improvements in their VO2 max per se, but to just to be able to run more at higher and higher percentages of VO2 max? Is that where most people find improvement or the marathons? Or do you think that that's more, since she was such a great talent at an early age, she had already maxed it out so high and there was no much, there was no room for it to go up? And maybe amateurs could find more improvement in their VO2 max and therefore their marathon times. I think a little bit of both. I think um, whether or not your VO2 max is capable of being improved depends on what it is at baseline. And actually, for most people, that if you do a generalized endurance training program, you'll have some impact on all of those things. There are some overlapping sort of physiological underpinnings to these uh, these things. But certainly, Paula's VO2 max, when I first started working with it, was already phenomenally high. And you're right that it didn't change a great deal. It kind of was sometimes a little bit higher, sometimes a little bit lower. In the year when she ran her world marathon best, I think it was, it was at its highest, but simultaneously her running economy was at its best as well. And absolutely the pattern that we saw over those 15 years was for the VO2 max to remain relatively stable, but for her running economy to get progressively better. Um, so what that basically means is if you're running at a specific speed, say six-minute mile pace, the amount of oxygen, the amount of energy that you need to run at that speed is less. Um, therefore, you know, if you can operate at a particular VO2, that means that you, you're running at a higher speed. One of the lessons from the Breaking 2 project, which is another paper that we published a year or two ago, was that the fraction of the VO2 max that those guys could sustain, you know, could run at without accumulating any lactate was, was amazingly high. It was like high 80s. So it certainly is, is important. You know, if, if you're a 5,000-meter runner, you need a really high VO2 max because you're running at your VO2 max for that entire you know, durational distance. If you're running a marathon, um, it's not to say that VO2 max isn't important because it will set the ceiling, but there, the submaximal factors are, are much more important in relative terms. So, um, But it looks as if you need a long time for those changes to become manifest. So the thing about being a marathon runner and probably what, you know, if you've enjoyed a, a career on the track or at shorter road distances, there's still a potential for you to run good marathons because the factors that are really important for the marathon can continue to improve with time, even as you get a little bit older. You know, you're, you, while you start to lose a little bit of cardiovascular function, you can improve some metabolic function in your muscles to compensate for that and also you get biomechanical changes as well if the more miles you do the more uh, time on your feet as a runner you you accrue um over many weeks many months many years as far as 15 years as far as you know in the Paula study um the more economical you get the more you know your your running technique changes your muscle fiber recruitment potentially changes the mitochondria in your muscles will continue to develop all of that your, your the oxidative capacity of your muscles improves 
and your biomechanical ability to um, use that energy to propel yourself over the ground improves as well. So, you know, I think the lesson actually is that running economy is not something that, while it can change relatively rapidly, we've done some studies where if you do six weeks, you know, oxygen cost of running at a certain speed is a bit lower. So you're already starting to see, see some inroads. You're not good. Well, you're, you can you can improve your VO2 max probably to its maximum relatively rapidly, um, but running economy could, could take a decade to really hit its lower. So it's, it's really about consistency and perseverance. And of course, as part of that, it means making sure that you don't sustain too many injuries. You're better off being able to to run regularly, even if you're not running at your best the whole time. But having a sort of boom and bust thing is not is not ideal for that, I suppose, because you're not, you know, honing your your technique and your physiology by r- running so uh, so frequently. Couple follow up questions there. Um, you said with age you can continue to improve on the metabolic capabilities within the muscles while you may have some deterioration in your cardiovascular abilities. Can you? Uh, unpack that a little bit and maybe as much as you're able to dumb it down for a non-scientific, you know, listener. Um, what does that mean? What are, what are the metabolic improvements in the muscles that can improve? And what are on the other side, what are the cardiovascular, um, deteriorations that happen with age? Yeah. So when it comes to VO2 max, the thing that we think is really important is how much oxygen you can deliver to your muscles. So when you're working really maximally, how much oxygen can you deliver to your muscles and how much oxygen can your muscles use? We think the issue is not to do with the utilization, it's to do with the supply. So if you were able to supply your muscles with more oxygen, they'd be able to use it. The limitation appears to be in the cardiovascular system. How much how much oxygen can you extract from the air that you breathe in and then pump around your body via your heart? Now, when when you do endurance training, you're the the volume of your left ventricle in particular goes up. So your stroke volume goes up. Every time your heart beats, you pump out more blood, which is full of oxygen. Um, but your the, the total amount of oxygen you can deliver to your muscles per minute is a function of your stroke volume, so the amount of blood pump per heartbeat, but also the number of heartbeats per minute. The problem is as we get older, our maximal heart rate goes down a little bit. And Typically, you know, there's that equation that you know very well, I'm sure, 220 minus your age. Every year of age, your maximal heart rate decreases by about one beat per minute. So, um, you know, you're, you're kind of railing against that sort of thing. You're losing a little bit of your maximal cardiac output year on year. You probably don't notice it until you're older than maybe 30, 35. But once you go over 40 or 50, that ability to deliver oxygen to your muscles becomes impaired. So you've got to find a way to compensate for that. And one way might be, that your muscle's ability to use what oxygen is being delivered get, gets even better. A couple of things that can happen with, with that, which are consequent to long-term endurance training. One is that you get more capillaries around the muscle. So you know, it goes down the artery, goes into the arterioles, eventually into the capillaries, which surround the muscle fibers. So you know, the, the more training you can do over a long period of time, the greater angiogenesis, that's new growth of new blood vessels that happen. But the... Um, there's a little organelle within muscle cells, many thousands of them called mitochondria. And what happens is that the oxygen goes into those mitochondria and that's used as a fuel along with carbohydrate and fat to produce ATP. And again, with endurance training, you get mitochondrial proliferation or biogenesis. You, you get more mitochondria. Um, 
those mitochondria contain more oxidative enzymes so they can process the oxygen better. Uh, yeah, and, and possibly the mitochondria may get a bit more efficient in, you know, certainly in slow twitch compared to fast twitch muscle. But there's a whole host of metabolic adaptations that can can occur with long term consistent endurance training that might compensate somewhat for a failing, you know, in the inverted commas cardiovascular uh, delivery of oxygen to the muscles. Okay, and this will be probably as deep as I'm able or want to try to go today into this, but one more quick detailed follow-up to that, because the mitochondria, you hear that thrown around a lot, and I I think most people who say mitochondria don't necessarily know what it is. I don't. Um, You clearly do, so I'm wondering if you could just clarify one more time. I, I... because that's one of the main things people say about, oh, uh, when they say, you know, aerobic base, more mitochondria. Um, but, like, what does that mean? So if I'm understanding it right, the mitochondria, there's, you said thousands of them within within each organelle? Or within, where, are, like, basically, where are the mitochondria and how many, and you're saying they can grow in number? Is that what you said? Yeah, so within within a muscle cell, You've got um, you've got the contractile elements. It's called actin and myosin, and, and those those slide together, which cause contraction of the muscle and then relaxation. But that process requires energy. So around those sites, and actually the mitochondria are scattered all all across a muscle fiber. Some of them are close to the, uh, the periphery of the fiber. Some of them are more central, but certainly they're there to support the contraction process. And um, and and yeah, you can measure the mitochondrial density, the number of mitochondria per unit of muscle mass. Uh, if you take a muscle biopsy and people who are endurance trained and, you know, you can either do it cross-sectionally or longitudinally. If I took you now and trained you more, I could show that you get more mitochondria uh, per, per unit of, of muscle mass. Um, but not only that, the quality of each of those mitochondria can be improved as well. So each of those mitochondria might have more enzymes within it that help it to process the fuel to generate more ATP. So it is quite a complex thing, but we, we absolutely know that if you do a lot of endurance training, that you can get more mitochondria and also that those mitochondria can um, can process oxygen more efficiently. We also find, by the way, that type 1 or slow-twitch muscle tends to contain more mitochondria, they're more aerobic, more oxidative than slow than, than fast twitch or type two muscle. Um, and so part of your ability to be a good distance runner will you know might depend on your muscle fiber proportions. What you know, are you 70% type one and 30% type two? Are you 50-50? That kind of thing. Although, you know, another thing that will happen during the long term is that you can give your type two, your fast twitch muscle fibers more mitochondria as well and give them oxidative properties. So, you know, you can make yourself look more like a, a type one fiber predominant person, the more endurance training that you partake in. And you said the mitochondria are combining the oxygen with glycogen and fat to produce ATP, yeah. which is the, um, so when people say, you know, oh, you're burning a combination of, you know, glycogen, glucose, and fat at different uh, percentages over time, is it true that really, ultimately, ATP is the energy source? It's just you have to back up and find out where the ATP is coming from, and that's yeah. where the breakdown is. Like, how much how much is this ATP being produced by a combination, you know, what 
proportions of glycogen and fat. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. It's all about ATP at the end of the day. The only currency the muscle fiber knows to enable it to shorten is ATP. So there are different ways by which you can produce that ATP. Um, you can do it without oxygen. You know, in the short term, you'll fatigue very rapidly, but you have a you know, something called phosphocreatine, which is quite like ATP, and you can split that to give you some energy to regenerate ATP, right? But that's not going to, there's not much of that in the muscle cells, so it won't take very long. Um, you can use anaerobic glycolysis, so you break down your glycogen, but you're not supplying oxygen. So if you do a sprint for longer than about, well, it starts immediately, but let's say you're sprinting for 10, 20 seconds and longer. Um, there'll be a large anaerobic glycolytic thing. So you'll burn through your glycogen really quickly, turn it into lactate, but you'll be producing ATP as a consequence of that. But if you want to do longer term exercise beyond around three minutes and certainly to the marathon, then you'll be using your mitochondria to generate that ATP. And um, yeah, there'll be a blend of, of carbohydrate, so predominantly glycogen and fats that are stored within the muscle that, that feed in. If you're going um, relatively slowly, then there'll be a greater fats contribution. If you're going relatively rapidly, you'll be using more carbohydrate. Um, the, and, and we can determine how much fat and how, how much carbohydrate you're using by measuring something called the respiratory exchange ratio. Um, so when we're measuring VO2 in the lab, we don't, don't just measure VO2, we also measure VCO2. So VO2 is how much oxygen has been consumed, and VCO2 is how much carbon dioxide is being produced. Now, when you use more carbohydrate you produce more CO2 relatively. So that ratio between VO2 and VCO2 changes. So the, the closer it is to one, and if you go above, above one, you're starting to get anaerobic, but the, if you're in the 0.9s, then the majority of the substrate that you're using is, is carbohydrate. If it's in the 0.7s, 0.8s, then there's quite a lot of fat being used. Now, if you're, if you're an ultramarathoner, um, using fat, you know, as a fuel source is probably a really good idea because you're not you're not going fats. You just need to go for a long, long period. So fat's good. If you're running a slow marathon, if you're a five, six hour marathoner, then being able to use fat is a really good thing as well. If you're a two hour or even a three hour marathoner, then actually you're probably if you've got enough carbohydrate, if you've got enough glycogen in the tank, you're better off using that because it, it costs you a little bit less oxygen to produce ATP if you burn carbohydrate compared to burning fat. So what we find is that, you know, the two-hour marathoners, when they're running at 88% of their VO2 max, their RER, this this ratio, is quite high. You know, So they're, they're mainly using carbohydrate. And, of course, it's a fine balance in that because you, you want to run out of glycogen just as you hit the finish line. If you run out of glycogen a mile or two before you hit the finish line, then you have to rely on fat and you can't generate the ATP as rapidly from fat as you can with carbohydrate. So you hit the wall and you drastically slow down. So your pacing is really important. But if you get your pacing right and you've got just enough glycogen to get you to 26.2 miles, then then using that glycogen is a much better strategy than using the using fat. Uh, okay. Now this brings us to, I think, what's a pretty contentious um, question is the prospect of what people would call fat adaptation or, you know, being more fat efficient for a marathon. Um, Cause this is a huge problem. What you just brought up running out of glycogen is bad news, especially if you're trying to be competitive and run a certain time, that kind of thing. So what do you say to the people who, 
you know, claim to be able to train their bodies to run, run on a fire, a higher percentage of fat at a given pace, like say, you know, 85% of VO2 max. Um, is that a valid concept being able to rely less and less on glycogen at marathon effort? Not necessarily. So you certainly do get better at using fat when you do endurance training. It becomes inevitable because you're, you, you have to use fat and carbohydrates simultaneously. So you do get better at using fat. And of course, there'll be times during the training week when you're going to be glycogen depleted. So let's say you do a really hard session one day, um, you don't eat that much carbohydrate. And then the following morning, you go out before breakfast and you run five or six miles. You'll be running that five or six miles in a glycogen depleted state and you'll be requiring your muscle to use fat as a fuel. So for sure, the metabolic pathways, the mitochondria get better at using fat to produce energy. And that's fine. And that actually might force some mitochondrial adaptation. So nothing wrong with using that in training. But what you don't want to do is rely upon your ability to use fat alone in a, in a marathon. You've got, you want to start that race with full glycogen stores and you want to be to- topping up as far as you can, as frequently as possible, you know, with carbohydrate-rich drinks and gels and whatnot um, during the course of the event as well. Because, like I mentioned, I mean, the, the problem with, you, let's say, that if you run at a particular speed, let's, let's imagine that you're running at six-minute mile pace, and you, on one occasion you're you're using more mainly fat, and on another you're using mainly carbohydrate. Now you're running at exactly the same speed, but when you're using mainly fat, the oxygen cost is going to be a bit higher. In other words, your VO2 at that same speed will be slightly higher, and you'll be slightly closer to your VO2 max. So it might feel a little bit tougher. You know, you've got less capacity there. If you're running at that same speed using more carbohydrate, the oxygen cost is a bit lower. As a fraction of the VO2 max, you're a bit, you know, so you're lower as well. So you'll be accumulating less, blah, blah, blah. Um, so as far as possible, the idea is to is to use that glycogen tank and to use whatever uh, possibility you have to take more carbohydrate on during the event itself. That's what people often, you know, don't do very well. And with breaking two, we had to really get the athletes on board with, uh, with practicing that. But it worked in the end. So... You know, it's, but you're always going to be using a balance um, of, of fat and carbohydrate. So it's, it's hard. It becomes a bit, um, you know, too dichotomous to compare one with another. There's always going to be a blend. My point is certainly train. You'll inevitably improve your ability to utilize fat, which won't do you any harm. Um, but realize that if you want to run, you know, well, fast is obviously a relative term, but if you want to run two or three hours for the marathon, then carbohydrate is kind of king for that. If you're going to be on your feet four, five, six hours, you know, then then fat, because the intensity is going to be lower anyway, your ability to use fat is going to be much more important. Right. And the the arguments I've heard for this, um, I don't think I've heard anybody say that, okay, we want to train our bodies to run fast on only fat. I think the positions I've heard are more, of course, we want to be fully loaded, you know, maximally loaded with glycogen on the start line and even refuel during, but just slightly shift those percentages. So say, for example, just to make up numbers at marathon effort, instead of running at, on, you know, 80% carb, 20% fat, let's try to get that closer to maybe 60, 40 or something, just so 
you conserve the carbs you do have when you really need them at the end. And, but, but again, I don't know. Yeah. That, that sounds great to be able to run fat the same speed using fewer carbohydrates, but I just don't, I'm, I guess my question is, is it feasible to, is there anything practically you can do other than like you said, maybe here and there a little bit running in a depleted state, but um, the the other thing I have heard is um, by manipulating nutrition and trying to maintain, you know, right blood sugar, not overdose insulin, um, by keeping the fat burning response on, that can be one factor that helps. But um, yeah, are there any practical things you've come across where people are really conscious of this and trying to make it a key part of their training program? I mean. Going back to what you were saying, that what you don't want to happen, I think, is is go through the finish line with somewhat full glycogen stores. If you do that, then you could have run the marathon faster. So you know you you do want to, but it, but it's a balancing act for sure. You know you're going it's going to take you some trial and error to get that right in terms of your nutrition strategy and your pacing. Um, so carbs is important for that. Um, you know, I I think if you're if you're running a pretty big mileage. And and you've got hard days and easy days and long runs and, and everything. Yeah, certainly in in, um, in East Africa, they do a lot of their training early in the morning without any breakfast. And you know that that they're probably really well fat adapted. But what they also do is is make sure that they're fully glycogen loaded and their nutrition is good on the day of the race as well. So I think they're good at using both fat and carbohydrate. Um, yeah. But actually training in a glycogen depleted state, I'm not saying don't do that because actually whether that whether that's to do with being able to use fat is, is one thing. But it seems to be a, a stimulus to improving mitochondrial um, oxidative function. So it's certainly, you know, periodizing your, your training with your nutrition such that at least on some occasions you're training in a glycogen depleted state. Does it's really hard, you know. It's not something you should do all the time because you could get overtrained pretty quickly like that. But it's a good way to force your body to, um, you know, it's going to be uncomfortable and it is discomfort that causes the body to make the adaptations that you sometimes require. Yeah, um, going back to something else um, you said about VO2 max, how it it does put a ceiling on your potential marathon pace and. Uh, you gave the example of elites running at 88% of their VO2 max, and I'm sure there's a range. It's probably an individual thing, but still, it, it does set a ceiling. Whatever percentage your marathon pace is, the VO2 max is definitely a ceiling for that and is going to govern it to some degree. Um, when you look at VO2 max velocity itself, is there in turn a corresponding ceiling on VO2 max further up the chain in velocity? Like does your, I don't know, say max velocity over 60 or hundred meters or something like that govern your VO2 max pace the same way VO2 max governs your marathon pace. Hmm. I don't know that that relationship is quite so, so strong. Um, I mean, I would say that, you know, if Take Elliot Kipchoge. What's his best mile time? It's something outrageous, isn't it? It's, was it, is it as fast as 3.49 or so? It's low 3.50s, right? I'm not sure. I'm sure it's, it's something like that, yeah. But I, I think the ability to run that fast has got to kind of help you a bit. 
Um, you know, so for him running at 4.40s, 4.35s, whatever, is a walk in the park. You know, if you can run a mile in less than three fifth, I wish I could look that up now. <laughs> but it's he's way, way under four minutes for a mile. And I think that that kind of gives. So rather than think in terms of VO2 max providing the ceiling, you could use something like mile, best mile time or something like that, you know, and it just makes things more more comfortable. If, if your 10K time, you could do it this way as well. If your 10K time is only 28 minutes, you know, and you're trying to run 205, you're having to do four plus of those 10Ks quite close to your PB the whole way, and that's tough. Um, if you can run 26 something, you know, running at 28, running tw- consecutive 28 minute 10Ks is not such a big deal. So the ability, and, and I think that, you know, going back to Paula, the fact that she had a bit of a track career, and so did Elliot, it gives them that longevity, but it, I think it, you know, it, it gives them that consistency, that chronic adaptation. But I think developing speed over 1,500 metres, 3,000, 5,000, 10,000 metres is a, is a really good schooling, really, for future marathon success as well, because it just gives you that buffer. So there's uh, right. something to that. And I would, and I, we could look this up, but I would guess whatever his one mile or 1500 meter lifetime best is it was probably years before whenever he set his marathon personal best so i wonder like at the time when he was in the meat of his training for his you know optimal marathon what could he have run a one mile in at that time so i'm wondering how how much does your past speed capabilities affect your current you know, how much bearing does that have on your current uh, marathon fitness? And I guess what I was getting at with that question is how much should marathoners really be concerned with their speeds under, you know, whatever, under VO2 max distance, say? Yeah, I don't think you have to be that concerned. I just looked it up, by the way. It's three minutes 50, so it was about right. Yeah, right on. Incredibly fast. Um no, and, and and surely now he wouldn't be able to run that fast. I wouldn't be at all surprised if he could still run four minutes from miles, certainly with a, a little bit of preparation. Um, and so you've still got that, you know, 30-plus seconds per mile um, in the marathon, slower than your best mile time. So, you know, I think that's that's worthwhile. Um, no, I, I think just having that in your history just affects your training, as you kind of increase over the years. So that's probably where it's more beneficial. I do think that while running economy and the fraction of your VO2 max that you can sustain during the marathon are the main factors. So what you actually want is to be able to operate at a particular absolute um, metabolic rate or VO2. And then your running economy converts that VO2 into speed over the ground. Do you see what I mean? So, but that doesn't mean to say that you should neglect training your VO2 max if you're a marathon runner, because you still need that kind of stimulus to try to keep that as high as it as it can be while you're in marathon training. Um, and that isn't difficult to do. I would say once every 10 days, do a, do a 5K pace session, you know. So don't just do your marathon pace runs and your half marathon and 10K things, but occasionally go faster than that. Do something like five times 1,000 meters with two minutes recovery or do... Um, 12 or 15 times a minute with a minute off that that kind of thing and and i think that's probably just enough so that you're 
you're you're getting close to your maximal heart rate and therefore you're training at your vo2 max um, and you're giving that stimulus to the both the cardiovascular and the you know the whole integrated cardiopulmonary cardiovascular metabolic system so i i don't think it it would be appropriate if you're training for the marathon to only do you know barely faster than marathon running i think occasionally doing something that really wakes you up and just gives that you know you where you're actually at your vo2 max um albeit for short periods and not that frequently but not dropping it completely from the program i think there's probably something to be said for that does vo2 max um have a tight relationship with lactate threshold and do they you know does one kind of improve automatically with the other or do they kind of need to be treated separately I think VO2 max and lactate threshold are probably changed more or less in parallel. But what is interesting, and you've reminded me because um, I had this in my mind earlier and I didn't get to say it, but VO2 max and running economy seem to be kind of disparate from one another. So like with the break in two cohort, we had some runners that had really high VO2 max, but quite poor running economy. And we had some individuals who had a surprisingly low VO2 max given their caliber but had exceptionally good running economy. So there seems to be a bit of a trade-off there. Um, and I think it is hard to have a high VO2 max and exceptional running economy at the same time. And there's theories as to why that might be. Obviously, to have a high VO2 max, you need sufficient muscle. The more muscle you've got to consume the oxygen, the higher your VO2 max will be. But if you've got lots of muscle on your legs, that's going to cost you oxygen to carry, carry yourself around. And um, it is pretty interesting if you, if you look at the, the East Africans, Kenyans, they've got pretty skinny legs, actually. They've got, especially on the shank, just small calf muscles, really quite close to the knee, long Achilles tendons, quite slender thighs as well. Um, and that's probably one of the reasons why they have pretty good, um, good running economy. The other factor, you know, we've talked about VO2 max, running economy, lactate threshold or fractional, you know, the, the, um, the fraction of your VO2 max that you can run at. There is one, there is a fourth feature, I think, that kind of is only really now coming to the fore that I'm trying to kind of press at the moment. And that is something called durability or resilience. So it isn't just about what is your VO2 max, what's your running economy, what's your lactate threshold on the start line. If you do that, you know, that that assumes that those are static um, variables, static phenomena that just don't change. But we know that they do change. If I measured your running economy and your VO2 max, you know, on the start line, they'd be one thing. If I measured them at mile 25, they'd be something else entirely. And running economy in particular deteriorates quite substantially. So, you know, that, and that's a really important um, factor. How I, I think people like Paula and Elliot are, are brilliant in terms of resilience and durability. Elliot in particular, if you saw him run, you know, the 159, he was sprinting that last 800 metres, wasn't he? And his, his running technique didn't look any different. He didn't look any more fatigued in mile 26 than he had in mile, mile one. And I think if you could measure his running economy in mile one and mile 26, it wouldn't have been very different. Whereas most people could probably expect to lose five or get five or 10% worse. So understanding exactly what it is about, um, you know, th those those athletes that have this incredible fatigue resistance, I think is a, it's a really important question in exercise physiology right now. So that term resilience or um, 
what was the other word you used? Durability. Uh, durability. So what you're saying is that would, and I don't know if that's something, it sounds like you could measure it and that's what you're getting at here is. So the definition of that is because you said the, the other variables are not static and that's kind of a problem, but you're saying this durability is the kind of measures the ability to keep them static yes. and, and not deteriorate over time. Yeah. Um, but now with this, with the interesting thing about, you know, VO2 max versus lactate threshold, I mean, those are very precise uh, metrics. I mean, you measure those in terms of numbers and I mean, there's a very, there's an, a precise formula to determine the value of those running economy seems like a little more of a vague term. I mean, obviously there is a metric for it. If, if you're talking about, you know, a fraction of running at a fraction of VO2 max or whatever, but it doesn't, it, you know, it seems, is it something that just kind of happens over time? It doesn't, because I mean, you hear about workouts that are meant to target lactate threshold or VO2 max, but I don't, you know, are, are there certain training elements that are meant to improve on running economy? Or is that just something that kind of naturally happens over time as a byproduct of everything else? Yeah, good question. I don't think we really know for certain. So let's define running economy to begin with. And what it basically is, is, is the oxygen cost of some people or, or the energy cost of either running at a given speed or what's probably better is to the amount, the oxygen that it takes you to cover a kilometre. So um, I'll give you a number. If you want a number, everybody knows that 70 or 80 VOT max is really, really good. Okay. The average running economy for somebody is about 200 mils of oxygen per kilogram of body mass per kilometre. So it's taking you, you know, 200 mils per kilometer, per kilogram per kilometer. So the lower, the better. And then the lower, the better. Yeah. So if you're only using 190 or 180 or 170 mils per kilogram per kilometer, that's really, really good. If you're using 210, 220, then that's suboptimal. You know, that's uh, that's higher than average oxygen cost or, or relatively low running economy. So what we showed in the Paula paper, for example, is that to begin with, when she was 18, her running economy was pretty average. It was about 205. But over the years, it gradually got better and better and better until by by 2003, when she ran her 215, um, I think it was about 170. And there was an occasion actually after that where it was about 165, which is about the best running economy ever recorded. So so that's what that's what that's all about. Now, exactly what triggers those adaptations, we're not really sure, but it, it seems to me that you know, marathon runners have better running economy than middle distance runners. Now, that could be a genetic thing. And that's you know, because they've got good running economy. That's why they ended up as marathon runners. Or it could be a consequence of the training that they've done and continue to do, which is higher, higher mileage, much more consistent, you know, higher on a daily basis, a weekly basis, doing it for many, many years. And what we have to remember is with, there's a thing called cycling efficiency, as well, you know, if you if you measure people cycling at a particular speed or the oxygen cost of uh, covering a kilometer on a on a bike, there's a lot more consistency between cyclists. But the technique when people cycle is more or less the same, right? But when you see people run, their technique is very different. So while I don't doubt that there's a physiological component to running economy, there's a big biomechanical one as well. So I think what happens is, you know, when you're 17 or 18 and you haven't done much running your running technique is not as as good as it could be. 
you've got probably a bit of a bouncy action, you, maybe you're using your arms a bit too much. And over time, you know, your body is going to respond to the stresses and strains that you're putting it under, and it will find a way to move more economically. So, you know, the, the excursion of your center of gravity might change, your arm pattern might change, all sorts of biomechanical, technical changes will occur. Um, and that probably means that you just need to do a lot of running. That does, I'm not necessarily advocating a big mileage, again, not at the cost of quality, but it does mean consistency over a very, very long period of time. That's what you need to aim for. And if you can do that, your biomechanics and therefore your running economy will probably continue to improve. The other thing that I should mention, though, is that, you know, you can measure running economy in terms of mils per kilogram per kilometer at any speed you like. But if you're a marathon runner, you don't want to be really, really economical at nine minute mile pace. You want to be really economical at seven or six or five or whatever, you know, whatever your race pace is. Therefore, training specificity is really important. So I think if you want to improve your running economy at race pace, you have to do a proportion of your weekly mileage at race pace. And by doing so repeatedly, again, that will be the stimulus that your body needs to improve its physiology and biomechanics to process oxygen as efficiently as it can while you're running at that particular speed, the one that you want to be most efficient at come race day, whether you're a marathon runner or a 10K guy. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, we'll, a couple more practical uh, points here, and we'll wrap up. Um, you mentioned... You know, marathoners typically have better running economy and, it, you know, it could be a consequence of just running higher volume for training. And that does seem to be a common denominator when you look at, especially at the elite level, marathon training. I mean, there's, you know, whereas in the middle distances, you, you look at people's training volumes and it can be all over the place. I mean, there may be some people running 100 miles a week. There may be some people you know, training for a 1500 at 40 miles a week, you know, it's all over the place. But with the marathon, it does seem pretty universal that you pretty much have to, you have your mileage up there. And I'm, I think something that's hard to grasp, but for me at least is, you know, making the mental connection between just global volume over the course of like a week or a month or whatever and connecting that to the marathon performance, whereas, you know, in the 5K or whatever, you, you, you can do very specific workouts that are going to indicate you indicate very clearly what you're capable of. Whereas in the marathon, it's a little more mysterious what you what's going to happen on race day sometimes because, you know, it's like you have these separate pieces of the puzzle. Like, you know, you're not going to do a full marathon distance worth of quality in a given session. You're going to do you know, different pieces on different days, plus the overall volume across days and weeks. So I guess my question is, could you maybe from a a scientific point of view, maybe explain a little more the connection between higher global volume and better marathon performance? I mean, I know we've already talked about the mitochondria, but I think that's a hard connection for people to make. Is there anything else that explains that? No, that is a, that's a tough one. I, I think that I, I, clearly there's there's a pendulum, if you like, between the volume that you do and the quality of the training that you do as well. So if you're training for a mile or fifty or um, five thousand meters, then you know you probably only need forty or fifty or sixty. Yeah, people do do more than that sometimes, but let's say fifty or sixty miles a week might be optimal because 
you'll be having a lot of quality in that. You know, you'll be doing really high. You might do two or three uh, really high quality track sessions, and then you'll be recovering in between. So, you know, that's probably you don't want any more volume than that because if you started, if you did more mileage, you just wouldn't be able to run very fast in your track session. So you lose specificity. So I think that's probably the key word is specificity. Now, when you start to run 80, 90, 100, 110, whatever it might be, miles a week, then the volume is there and the, the quality comes down and the quality probably starts to become closer to what is specific and appropriate for the marathon. So I think that's um, that's probably, you know, something to do with it. And But I still think that in the same way that, you know, if, if you're a 5,000-meter runner, I, I used to like Frank Horwell's five, what do they call it, five-pace system or something. You know, so if you want to run 5,000 meters, um, over the course of a two-week period, you might do a, a session that's like 800-meter focus, one at 15, one at 5K, one at 10K, one at, that sort of thing. And I think the same ought to be true really for the marathon. While the majority of the training that you do will be a bit below your marathon speed, there ought to be a couple of sessions that are probably above it. And you don't have to be, you know, like I said already, you might want to do one session that's VO2 max specific around five, three to 5K pace once every 10 days or so. You'll probably want to do one or two sessions at about 10K pace, so you're operating, fat, you know, you, you don't want to be just training up and up below and at marathon pace. I think it's important to do something occasionally at faster than such that you feel comfortable at, at marathon speed, but also doing marathon pace runs, you know, the mid, the, the sort of midweek run of 12 to 15 miles, let's say, and then the longer one. I think inserting, um, blocks whether it's one mile or 5k blocks at marathon pace is really important for the, the specific stimulus that you'd need so um but the other thing to remember is that it's horses for courses people resp- there's there's more than one way to, to skin a cat isn't there to mix my my analogies here and you can get away with it and and certainly i i see some marathon runners who train like ultra mar- ultra marathon runners you know mm. I'll take Steve Jones as an as an example again here because I mentioned already that when he ran 208 and 207, he was doing about 80 or 90 miles a week and not many miles were slower than five-minute mile pace, so very, very specific, and he was doing 10K and 5K sessions on top of that. Um, and when he start, when he'd run his 208 and 207, people were going, well, you know, Carlos Lopez and Rob DiCostello and all of these, you know, they're all doing 120, 150 miles a week. What, imagine how fast you could run for the marathon if you if you did that kind of volume. And of course, you mistakenly started to run 120, 130, 140 miles per week and got progressively slower. That, you know, it may not be causal, but then he started running 212 and 216, and, and that was the end of it. So you can definitely have too many miles because if you run too many miles at too slow slower speed, and you become you lose your specificity. And, and actually, if you were racing over 40 miles or 50 miles, you'd probably win. But it isn't about that. It's about 26 miles. And we forget sometimes, it's certainly at the sharp end, at the Kipchoge end of things, you know, it's not the ultimate test of endurance. They're only going for two hours. And they're going yeah. at a bloody fast pace. Yeah. Um, well, do you think there is anything to the concept of, I don't know if there's a name for it, but... Um... You know, the idea that you, you know, training at a relative low intensity for you, or again, on this hard, easy scale, not fast, slow, but training easy just, and you could use heart rate as an example, uh, as a, a method to measure easy. So just stay consistently easy, definitely slower than marathon effort. And then over time, if you just stay at that effort, it will, that same effort will naturally get faster over time. 
is that a physio- physiologically valid, do you think, like just kind of maintaining the same easy effort and then just slowly adapting and becoming faster naturally? Or do you think you more have to like push the envelope to actually make it faster? I think as you get fitter, if you're running at a you know particular RPE, rating of perceived exertion, and you're getting faster, that's great. Um, and, sh- and sure, for some people, running lots of miles at pretty slow speeds, uh, you know, well below their marathon pace, that might work for them. Um, it wouldn't be the approach that I choose, as you probably will have gathered over the course of the last hour. I think there are certainly more efficient ways to get there and probably more specific ways to get there. But, you know, people have got to find what works for them. People have got their own psychological, sociological, physiological things. And and you just really got to try what works for you. So I'm not going to sort of dismiss or criticize different approaches because you can, it's it's like with, um, you know, Sebco and Steve Ovet used to train very different ways. um, And they both ran 329 for 1500 meters. (laughs) You know, you, you can get yeah. you can get the same result for the marathon by taking completely different approaches as well. I'm sure you could sure. get if you get if you gave somebody 50 miles a week and you gave the same person 150 miles a week, probably wouldn't make that much difference to what they eventually produce. Right? Yeah. There, there's so many factors involved. It's hard to uh, hard to say what's causing what sometimes. Um, well, let me uh, wrap up with this one. Um, something I wonder about a lot, and I'd be curious to get your opinion on is. You know, if you were advising a somewhat serious marathoner, even elite marathoner, uh, would you advocate for a person if their ultimate goal is, you know, optimal marathon performance? They're not worried about running a fast, you know, track time or anything. If focused on the marathon, would you, uh, and over a long period of time, you know, 10 years, whatever, do you advocate for very stark uh, periodization? throughout the year or are you more would you kind of fall into more of the camp of just one marathon cycle rest one another one kind of one after another and slowly improve or or vast you know shifts between types of training in different seasons i think it probably depends on where you're at in your marathon career you know i think that there comes a time probably when you're you know just a complete out and out marathon runner and if you want to run two or three marathons per year, you don't have the opportunity to do anything but go from one marathon cycle into the next. I think if you've got enough variety within the week, within the micro cycle, within each of those blocks, that's probably okay. If you're making the transition towards the marathon or you're a relative novice to the marathon um, and you're running them maybe a little bit less frequently, I, I think there's some sense for psychological uh, refreshment as much as anything to change it much more radically. And I do think that there may be a case for, you know, occasionally just taking three months and training specifically for 5k. And then off the back of that, once you've achieved whatever goal that you wanted to, you build your mileage on top of that. So, you know, normally we have this, um, you know, the, the old Lydiard system is you, you do your base miles and that gets progressively faster and then you taper and you peak and whatever. And that can work. But I think exploring, experimenting with a reverse approach, periodization is a good thing as well. So, you know, do your marathon, recover from that, maybe train for 5K or 10K, for, you know, so drop the mileage, go really intense. But after you've completed that block, start to build your mileage on top of that and just see whether, you know, Doing marathon training when you've when you're used to running so much faster 
means that your quality improves substantially in that next marathon block and see if you get quicker. You know, I've certainly seen that that works for some people. Yeah, interesting. Well, uh, thanks again for doing this. And your uh, motto, no easy miles. Um, I'm it curious. Wasn't my it was Steve James's. And, uh, the, one, the one you adopted in your club. I'm curious, um, what are you running easy or no easy or any miles at all these days? Do you have any uh, personal running plans coming up? Yeah, well, I'm supposed to be running the, the London Marathon on the 2nd of October. So I've got, got an entry for that, which is only about nine weeks away. And I've had various um, niggles and bits of COVID and whatever. So um, I'm probably going to toe the line and run around, but it's going to be a slowish one for me. But I am quite keen. I'm 52 now. I ran um, 301 uh, marathon in Moscow a couple of years ago when I was 49. And I, I really do want to break three hours before I... Uh, hang up my boots or, or, or be a little bit more um, generalized in the sorts of training that I do. And it should be doable. I, I did run a 58-minute 10-miler a couple of years ago as well. And if I can get back in that shape, and there's no reason why I can't, then, um, then I think sub three hours for the marathon should be doable. So, yeah, that's the goal. But it won't be in, in London in, in nine weeks. But I do have Brighton in the spring, so uh, maybe it'll be then. Oh, okay. Well, exciting. We're in similar boats. Um, I ran a 259 last year last okay. summer here in minnesota and i'm i nice. uh, got one in december coming up and i'm trying to uh, see how much improvement i can make uh on last year so yeah i do prefer uh, i mean i must say a lot of it is to do with your own um your own psyche as well you know so i used to run 1500 meters and 3k and all of that and i'm i'm used to running fast and training hard i, I find running for two hours plus pretty pretty boring you know trying to kind of focus on that and so i i do like to break it up with with some intervals and you know i just i just find that the time clicks by if you can do that i don't like plodding along for uh, two three hours at a time I, I find that pretty hard yeah i think um it's easy to underestimate the importance of actually enjoying what you're doing uh, i think for that's sure. a big factor hard to put a number on that but um i yeah. think people really enjoy a lot of the info you shared today. So thanks a lot for uh, sharing and taking some time. And um, I'll keep an eye on the London Marathon results and <laughs> see how close you get there. I will be there, definitely. But I'll do it one day. I'll break three, promise. Sounds great. All right, um, Andy Jones, uh, thanks again. And I will put um, more of the information we didn't necessarily share here in the uh, show notes about your bio and the two-hour project and all the things we alluded to earlier. So thanks again. Yeah, cheers, Joe. Bye.